Arcteris has been a remarkable partner. You know, by the time we open December 15th, Arcteris will have invested over $18 million into getting us open. And the overall build-out plan is going to be about $38 million over eight years. And, you know, you have to put that into the context. We had a plan. We knew it was going to be expensive. No one was entertaining the possibility that this was going to be a quick profitability play for Arcteris' investors. But that's not the nature of why they make these investments. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. It's happening. The lifts will be spinning again at Saddleback next month. Before we get to that, a reminder to please subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com. Also, drop me an iTunes review if you're listening on that platform. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal and on Facebook at The Storm Skiing Journal. The Storm Skiing Podcast is brought to you in part by Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a biannual, large format print title celebrating mountain culture. Head over to mountaingazette.com and enter code GOHIRE10 for 10% off subscriptions. Sign up now to make sure you get the first issue, which is on its way to subscribers now. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. The Mountain Gazette returns in November in print form for the first time in eight years. These issues will sell out. Grab your subscription today over at mountaingazette.com. Mountain Gazette, when in doubt, go higher. Episode 30, Andy Shepard, General Manager and CEO of Saddleback, Maine. Yes, this is real. This is happening. Saddleback is back. The Northeast needs Saddleback for a lot of reasons. Here are three. Reason number one, terrain-wise, it's a top 10 mountain in the East. Tell me 10 better ones. When the snow is good and the glades are bumping. Good luck with that. Reason number two, every ski area matters, but some matter more than others and the big ones matter most of all. Look, I'm a proponent of small ski areas. When it comes to creating new skiers, neighborhood rope toes give more people the chance to ski at an affordable price than Killington could if it was open for a thousand more years. But the big ski areas drive the business, and we only have so many of them. And once they go away, forget about replacing them. You are not cutting a new large ski area in New England, so, it's essential to save the ones we have, and a very dedicated group of people has saved Saddleback. Reason number three, the more the industry consolidates, the more we need big indies to provide some balance. Those epic and icon passes are cheap as dirt, but the big guys aren't doing everything right. And some people just want a big, gnarly local where they can get after it. This is a Northeast story, but the return of Saddleback is a skiing story. And it's my opinion that, the operational dislocation of COVID aside, the return of Saddleback is the single most important story in North American skiing this season. This is a whole new ownership model, trying a whole new approach to running a big mountain skiing operation. And if Arcteris, the so-called impact fund that purchased the mountain, 
does it right, they could succeed where generations of owners have failed in bringing Saddleback to its full rowdy potential. I'm so pumped for the return of this mountain. and so excited to bring you this interview with the guy who's driving the ship. Let's do it. My guest today is the general manager and CEO of Saddleback, Maine. With 66 trails and an extensive glade network on a 2,000-foot vertical drop, Saddleback is one of the largest ski areas in Maine. In January, Boston-based Arcteris Impact Fund, an investment firm that specializes in growth-oriented business and community infrastructure projects in underserved communities, purchased Saddleback, and the mountain will open in December for the first time in five winters. Prior to taking the top job at Saddleback, he was a longtime LL Bean executive and the founder, president, and CEO of the Maine Winter Sports Center and Outdoor Sports Institute. Andy Shepard is my guest. Andy, so good to have you on the program. Thanks for having me, Stuart. First of all, Andy, how have you and your family been doing over these past several very strange months? Have you all stayed safe and healthy? We have. And, you know, I would say, so, you know, Betsy and I were living in South Freeport, which is a pretty awesome community. We had a coastal lifestyle. We were you know, driving a lot, but not really getting a lot of time to spend outdoors. And uh, since we've been up at Saddleback since um, February, it's 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 been awesome. We've been cross-country skiing. We've hiked the mountain about 20 times. There's all sorts of trails around here. It's we're living the mountain lifestyle that we've wanted to for a long time. So this is great. And you're about to bring that mountain lifestyle back to a whole community that is desperate for it after five years without it. So five years since Saddleback closed down lift serve skiing in January, as I mentioned, our terrace closed the deal on the ski area and vowed pretty aggressively to get it open for the ski season. Uh, give us a sense, Andy, of the scale of what you've had to accomplish to get Saddleback ready to go over these past several months. So in the 55 years of operation that, that ended in 2015, Saddleback, from what I've been able to determine, had only made money about three times. Um, mm. So there was an enormous challenge there to try and identify what in the previous business models had not worked and what needed to change in order to to change that financial trajectory. But then we also had what probably was seven years of deferred maintenance, you know, certainly the five mm. years at the mountain had been closed, but for probably a couple of years before that. Um, all of that stuff had to be figured out, um, and we felt pretty comfortable, confident, if you will, certainly not arrogant, but confident that, that we had a, a good plan, but it was an expensive plan. And Arcteris has been a remarkable partner in uh, diving in through thick and thin to make that happen. Um, you know, by the time we opened December 15th, Arcteris will have invested over $18 million into getting us open. And the overall build-out plan is going to be about uh, $38 million over eight years. And, you know, you have to put that into the context. We had a plan. We knew it was going to be expensive. Um, no one was entertaining the possibility that this was going to be a quick, profitable profitability play for Arcteris' investors. Um, but that's not the nature of why they make these investments. But then you enter into that. The, this whole COVID issue and the comp complexities that that brings to the challenges that we've had to face. And they haven't blinked. They've been right there the whole time. So it's enough to get a ski resort up and running just in a regular year. 
just a few months in between when you shut down operations, and then you had to ramp it all back up. As you said, there are a couple of things really complicating that process this year. COVID is a big one, obviously, and we can talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Uh, but the other is the fact that the ski area was sitting dormant for five years. Help us understand the added challenge to get a ski area the size of Saddleback going after it's been out of commission for so long. Yeah. Well, the Berry family had invested in in a, you know, a staff, a skeleton staff to be sure, but a very capable staff um, of a, two or three people being on the mountain looking after it, Jimmy Quimby um, in particular, and making sure that anything that had to be done to protect the value of the asset was being done. Um, but, you know, in that in that financial mindset, you're not investing in a lot of things that don't absolutely have to be invested in. So there was the, the foundational pieces that had to be done. You know, the, we had an old lift um, that was kind of the, the backbone of the, the mountain here. It was a rangely. It was a double. It was an 11-minute ride. Um, but when we were busy, and if this place is going to be successful, it's going to have to be busier. There was a 30-minute wait typically. So mm. it would take 40, 45 minutes to get up the mountain. Um, that was a challenge that we had to, to work through. The skiing down part of, of Saddleback has always been – an exceptional experience, iconic really, around the country. And people have loved that. There's a passionate following for that. But we really asked a lot of our guests to to get them up the mountain. Our new high-speed detachable quad goes from a 750 uphill capacity of the old Rangeley to 2,400 per hour. And from a 40 to 45-minute ride when it's busy to a four-minute ride. That is going to be an enormous game changer for us. Um, on top of that, our lodge, which is one of the more remarkable pieces of lodge architecture in New England. You know, it's just a beautiful example of Western Maine architecture, um, rough-hewn timbers, field stone, um, a beautiful lodge. But it was quite poorly designed and took very little um, uh it 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 did not build out the capacity on the inside the way it needed to be built out mm. and so for dining for instance you know the upstairs we had a pub that had a seating capacity of about 124 people the kitchen was dramatically undersized so it would take 2 hours sometimes longer to get a, a meal there were no bathrooms on the third floor and ironically there were no window views up the mountain um, oh, wow. There was kind of a, a wall and then a, a looking down onto the second floor below and there was a 15 to, to 40 foot gap between where you were and the windows that looked up the mountain. We've mm -hmm. changed all that. Um, we've built out all that floor space. We've brought all the, the floor all the way out to the windows. So not only do you have these spectacular views up the mountain, but we've gone from a seating capacity of 124 to almost 400. The the kitchen is three times the size. We have four bathrooms. Um, and all of this was being done, was being planned as COVID was hitting. And so we were mm -hmm. able to take a step back and say, you know, what is what is COVID going to change in, in the approach that we have to take to, to our guests, to our business model? And we were able to do a lot of things in the design and build out of our lodge that other people weren't because they weren't doing that work. 
so we, you know, we have um, made a significant investment in a new HVAC system that will turn the air over three or four times faster in our lodge than it has been able to in the past. Invest a lot of money into our bathrooms so that everything's touchless, water and soap and and flush. And our new toilets are plumeless. And I'll I'll let all your podcast listeners Google and see what that is. <laughs> let's just say that's a good thing. Um, right. So, you know, coming out of this, you know, we really believe that we're going to be one of the, if not the safest ski areas in the East. And, um, you know, that was all work that was made possible because Arcteris was willing to make these investments. So it sounds, Andy, like the approach you're taking here, the common thread between both upgrading that Rangely lift and upgrading the lodge significantly is you're not just walking in here, turning the lights back on and bringing back Saddleback exactly as it was just to get it going. You're saying, okay, we're going to make this a lot better. We're going to take this as an opportunity to really break this thing down into studs and bring a better experience because this is an opportunity to do that rather than just starting from a minimal place. Yes, and I think you can appreciate our approach to that, which was there were things about Saddleback and the culture here that that was awesome and that I didn't want to change at all. In fact, we wanted to find ways of enhancing that. You know, the, the, the Saddleback family is a remarkable family. It, it's, it has this kind of down-to-earth, up-for-anything approach to life that um, I love, have wanted to be a part of for a long time, and I'm honored to, to be a part of it now. That's really important. We need to find a way to celebrate that and make sure that that continues to be a part of the culture moving forward, and, and I'm confident that we will. But, yes, there were some structural things about skiing here that was really difficult. The getting up the mountain part was difficult. The being able to get something to eat in the lodge and take full advantage of the lodge was difficult. Um, you know, those kinds of things we're trying to solve and, and make sure that this model is financially sustainable moving forward, but also is one that celebrates this remarkable thing called the, the Saddleback Ski family. So it sounds like you have the mentality, you have the attitude, you want to get it done. It sounds like you have the support of Arcteris. You absolutely have the support of the community. As you mentioned, though, COVID swept in right when you were getting going with this thing. Uh, how much did that complicate your efforts? And, and was there ever a moment when you thought, okay, this is just not going to work this year? Or, or did COVID just make you redouble your sense of mission and purpose to just get this thing online? Well, COVID did not um, for a moment lead me or anyone else here to believe that we weren't going to be able to get this done. You know, our approach is that there are no problems, there are only opportunities. And where is there an opportunity in this to embrace um, the growth of, of Saddleback. So let's think about this um, you know, kind of holistically for a second. In New England, there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 million skier visits that would typically get on an airplane and head to the Rockies, head out west, or head to Europe every year to go skiing. Because of COVID, that's not happening this year. Mm-hmm. On top of that, um, you know, every outdoor pursuit has exploded in popularity and passion this spring, summer, and fall. People were desperate to be outside. They wanted, first of all, they, they felt a, a sense of of safety being outside, but I think there's also this truth that 
being in nature has a very calming effect on us and nature bathing is is what the japanese call it and i buy completely into that um people need to be outside now when the winter comes it starts getting colder and people feel the drive to go inside there's going to be this acute visceral reaction to that that's going to make them want to be outside even more you think about all of the the industries that are prepared to support people being outside in the winter and there aren't a lot of them but no one is better positioned to take advantage of that than the alpine ski industry is so you know you have a whole bunch of skiers that are going to be in new england this year that would typically go somewhere else you have a whole bunch of new people being driven into the industry because of this desire to be outside and then you add to that the fact that you know, I think of all of the ski stories being told nationally, um, certainly in New England, Saddleback is one of the ones, if not the one, that's getting the most attention. So I believe that people are excited by what we're trying to do. They're excited by the fact that we're opening again. They've heard so many great things about Saddleback over the years that, that we're pretty confident that our challenge is not going to be how do we convince people to come to Saddleback. The challenge will be the challenge every skier in the country is going to have, which is how do we lower expectations about people's ability to be able to get inside, and how do we prepare people for the fact that this year skiing is going to be an outdoor activity. You know, they have to show up at the mountain prepared to be self-sufficient. They have to show up at the mountain understanding that they won't have unfettered access to lodge and facilities. But that doesn't mean that they can't go skiing because we're prepared to get as many people on the hill as want to be here. We just, we're not going to be able to bring a lot of people into the lodge and neither is anyone else. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Andy. I think this is one of the most important, if not the most important story and in, in, certainly in the Northeast and possibly in U.S. skiing this season. And, and it's not just the story of an individual ski area. To me, it's it's part of the greater narrative of, of skiing's long-term survival and finding more sustainable models. I, and I do want to talk about Arcteris a little bit. Before we move on to that, you just talk about the team you've had around you because looking from an external point of view, frankly, in the spring, I, I was questioning whether you'd be able to pull this off. It sounds like you're 100% certain that this is happening. Can you talk about the folks you've had around you and how they've internalized that mission to bring skiing at Saddleback back to this community. Yeah, and I would say that none of this would have happened without that team reconstituting itself. Um, I think Saddleback has long had a reputation for having outstanding mountain ops teams, and um, we were able to reconstitute the leadership team from when the mountain closed down. Jimmy Quimby, who's a legend around here, um, Jared Emerson, who's a younger version of Jimmy, Jason, um, uh, you know, all these people that have been, uh, you know, when the mountain closed down, Jimmy stayed here, but Jared and Jason had to go somewhere else to try and stay involved in, in the, the ski world. When they found out that the mountain was, was uh, you know, opening up again, um, they came back immediately along with a lot of other people that want to be a part of making this happen. And what I keep hearing for, around the industry, and you know, I was in the industry for 20 years before I took over Saddleback, and what I was always hearing, you know, that 
this team is one of the best in North America, and the mm-hmm. chance to work with them the last eight or nine months has proven that to be true. But everybody that's wanted to come to this mountain, and our, our mountain ops people certainly, but food and beverage, our IT people, our retail people, the the condos and facilities people, you know, everybody that wants and our outdoor programs and ski school, we have been able to attract some really outstanding people who are here because they have a passion for, for wanting to make a difference at Saddleback and in this region. And um, anything we're able to accomplish this year has been because of their energy, their passion, and their their willingness to, uh, you know, to kind of step out there, take some risks, and make some stuff happen. Well, it's an amazing starting point to have that kind of support around you. And it's vital to have the ownership supporting that team in the same way, because without that kind of support, what are they going to do, right? Because I had John Hammond, uh, Sugar Bush GM, on a couple weeks ago, and he's been at Sugar Bush for 30 years, and he was talking about the days under American Skiing Company when they came in, guns blazing, dropped five new lifts on the mountains, and then kind of disappeared. And the staff morale was really low because they weren't supporting them. So let's talk a little bit about Arc Terrace, your current owner. It's not a typical ski resort owner. They describe themselves as an impact fund, which fixes up distressed community assets in underserved areas and turns them into profitable businesses. Tell us about Arc Terrace and why they are the right owner for Saddleback right now. So Back in 2014, the Barry family um, was realizing that in order for this to move forward, they were going to have to make um, significant investments. And to be clear, they made significant investments in this mountain during the time that they owned it and you know, brought it um, light years ahead of where it had been. They just realized that they didn't have the, the resources and will to, to take it that next step. Um, and, you know, as you heard me describe $18 million to take it the next step, that was a significant additional investment. So they reached out to me. Maine Winter Sports Center, my old company, was in the business of um, buying failed alpine ski areas and building Nordic um, ski areas. We, we built a couple of the top Nordic venues in North America, hosted biathlon World Cup events with 140 million TV viewers, um, but we also were buying alpine ski areas that had, had failed. Uh, Big Rock and Aroostook County and Black Mountain and Rumford were a couple of them. Um, so the Berry family knew of my work, and anytime Saddleback seemed to be in trouble, the media would typically reach out and see if we were interested in buying it. And I loved the, the project, but it was always just too big for um, for our capacity at the time. And the Berry family in 2014 reached out to say, look, we're, you know, we're thinking about, um, closing the mountain down. We're, we're looking to sell. Is this something you'd be interested in doing? And we had actually lost all of our funding from our, from our funding source just two days before the Berries called. So I was, I had eight weeks to raise a million dollars to keep the wheels on the main winter sports center bus. So I had my own little existential crisis going, but Saddleback was such a remarkable opportunity. I came up here with my son. We spent a couple of days looking over the books to try and figure out, you know, was this doable and came to the conclusion that it was, but you know, the things that we're talking about now that need to replace the Rangeley, the need to do a lot of the work on the lodge, those kinds of things that this was going to be expensive. And main winter sports center was in a position to, 
to take on that that debt. So I kind of talked it through for a while, came to the conclusion that, that it didn't make sense for us to do. They moved on. But I, I stayed interested because I, I I realized that this was not going to be a traditional investor. Um, given the amount of money that it was going to take to get this mountain going, the fact that um, you know it, it had such a long history of financial underperformance, this was going to be a challenge. And and the longer the mountain stayed closed, the bigger that challenge got. And I was working with Tom Federley, who's uh, become a very dear friend, but he's an attorney in Portland who also showed passion for Saddleback and wanted to figure out how to get this thing back on its wheels. And the two of us worked on this for almost five years. Um we found our terrace at about the same time that the state did and some other people reached out and started the conversation because they really were uniquely capable of solving this problem. You know, an impact fund, what they do is they go in and they invest in financially distressed communities. And in the case of, of our terrace, it's communities that have lost their primary employer. And our terrace had a 10-year track record at that time of doing this kind of work successfully around the country. And they were interested. They were very interested, actually. Um, It took a surprising amount of effort, though, to try and convince the community and the previous owners that Arcteris was legit, that they were for real. And I certainly understood some of that because there had been so many um, fraudulent players on the table up to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, our terrorists persevered through all of that and stayed with it, and it was not easy to do. You know, they, their integrity was called into question quite often, and you know, they and we felt that that uh, this was not only the right thing to do, but that they were the right people to do it. And I think now, five weeks before opening, I think we're about to prove to a lot of people that that their faith in our terrace was well placed and I cannot wait to open this place up and let people see the work that we've been doing. If you look back on the history of Saddleback Andy it's it, it it's a really special mountain but it's had a really frustrating history from certain points of view because it, successive owners have had pretty grand visions for the place that they were unable to execute for a variety of reasons whether it was disputes with the National Forest Service, uh, whether it was just the amount of investment needed to bring it up to scale. How is Arcteris different? How is this time different? Well, you know, I would say that the work that Arcteris and we are doing now is built on the efforts of everybody that's gone before us. So everybody has taken it a step closer to to realizing the possibility and our hope is that we can take it that final step i think you know we've identified those things in the business model that um that have been problematic uh, we, we're addressing those we're looking to be a year-round operation um, we identified the fact that the relationship with the national park service and the appalachian trail was problematic in the past so you know, we we have done things differently. We reached out to to the Appalachian Trail. We reached out to Maine Audubon. We reached out to um, Trust for Public Lands. 
to um, say, look, you know, like every other ski area in the country, we are going to have to develop our lands from time to time to meet the emerging needs and interests of our guests. And the reason Arcturus is, is investing all of this money is because um, of the 200-plus jobs that this represents as a critical part of the economy and also the, the investments that that they want to make in helping to build the social infrastructure around here. You know, Saddleback success is, is not going to be determined by just getting the mountain up and running again. My responsibility includes also dealing with affordable housing, affordable quality daycare, benefits for seasonal workers, you know, all sorts of challenges around the community. But what will make us different is how we're going to do that development. And we could talk about that all we want, or we could have a couple of projects that demonstrate that. So, you know, one of the projects that we're working with the Land Use Planning Commission in Maine on is a solar farm, a 40-acre solar farm that would generate twice of twice the amount of energy that we need to drive the campus um, and would help the state of Maine accomplish its, um, its renewable energy objectives by 2050. That's a part of, of our focus. The other part of that focus is you know, we need to build a mid-mountain lodge um, to expand our capacity, but also to take full advantage of how beautiful this mountain is. And um, you know, the typical mid-mountain lodge experience is you take a, an excavator, you dig the, the ground up, you plant a, um, you, know, you pour a cement foundation, and then you drop a warehouse on top of it. You know, and there typically are a few windows in those things because you're trying to be as as efficient with heating costs and everything else. So you could just as easily be in a, a Walmart in Bayonne, New Jersey, as you know, on top of a mountain in Maine, someplace. Our approach is going to be different, and we're we're looking to build on pedestals so we have the minimal disruption of the watershed. We want to build the walls in glass primarily so that. You're immersed in the natural environment, and you have the views that take you all the way from Mount Washington to the south to the Canadian border to the north. Um, and, you know, we want you to feel like you're a part of the environment. But building with glass comes with certain inherent um, problems, challenges in a you know, natural environment, specifically bird strikes. So we're partnering with the Maine Audubon to try and identify the right kind of glass so that the birds see that as a barrier, not as glass that they don't understand and fly into it, mm -hmm. um, creating a lot of bird fatalities. And then finally, the roof is going to be an undulating sod roof with native lowbush blueberries so that you won't see it from the Appalachian Trail up above, and it will tend to enhance the, the bird habitat. You know, we, we spoke to all three of these groups, and all three of them understood that, you know, A, I'm a former L.L. Bean executive. I hiked the Appalachian Trail in 1978. I think my environmental bona fides are, you know, I've got some street cred with this group. And I think they mm -hmm. all knew that, that my intentions and our intentions were authentic here. You know, by reaching out to these groups and letting them know that we share the same values that they share, by letting them know that, that our approach to these things will be you know, honorable and authentic, um, 
you know, I, 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 my hope is that we can bridge some of the, the trust challenges that have existed in the past and we can bring everybody under one tent and say Saddleback is really important, if not critical, to the economy and culture of Western Maine. We all need to come together to figure out how we can sustain and support that. And there's a role for all these people in the tent to help us do that. At the same time, there's, there's a responsibility we have to do this um, the right way. And we're trying to demonstrate that we are doing this the right way um, in, in our actions here. And so I'm hoping that in the process that, uh, you know, the challenges that the mountain has faced in the past will be behind us. So these are some long-term projects that you're describing, Andy, that require the cultivation of long-term relationships. Does Arcteris intend to be a long-term owner, or are they more of a, of a fund in the model of fix it up, find another long-term owner when we get the business in good shape? Yeah, I think you know their typical investment spans eight years. Um, that's a long time. You know, we've got a lot of work to do over the next next eight years. And we'll figure out what the, the next phase of this looks like. But you know, all of us are focused on what do we have to do to change the financial trajectory of this mountain? What do we have to do to establish this as a sustainable business? And how do we leverage Saddleback as a successful, sustainable business to make the changes in the, in the surrounding communities that we want to that we want to do to make the quality of life and the sustainability of these communities around here? Um, settled as well. So you're talking about developing the mountain and no question, there's a ton of potential there. Uh, One of the reasons in my mind, though, that it was so vital to bring Saddleback back online is that you could not cut a new ski area in New England if you tried. The the regulations in in the government, there's just too many obstacles in the way. It's just not going to happen. At least I can't see any way. Perhaps someone with more vision can make it happen. But because of that reality of New England where we are now in the modern era, it's not the 1960s where you go cut five trails in your backyard anymore. How vital was it, in your opinion, to rescue this mountain before it faded back into the wilderness? Critical. Um, and and not just for the role it has in, you know, the role it plays in skiing, but as I mentioned, the role it plays in the economy here. But, you know, you think about skiing in New England and the the southern parts of New England are facing more and more challenges every year with with climate change. Um, and, you know, what that's doing is forcing more and more reliance on the, the northern tier um, ski areas to be able to support the demand. Without a saddleback, um, you know, I think that becomes a, more and more of a challenge every year. We have this unique convergence of lake effect, you know, the all of the lakes in this region that you know, have historic relevance to fly fishing and outdoorsmen for the last 150 years. The winds come across those, and they they bring humidity even in the wintertime that slams into Saddleback and drops a lot of snow. And Saddleback gets more snow than any other ski area in Maine as a result of that. We also get winters up here still. Um, so, you know, I, I think as a part of the New England community, Saddleback is going to become more and more important every year. So right now, Saddleback is the greatest comeback story in U.S. skiing. Thinking long-term though, Andy, what is your vision for Saddleback? The the vision for Saddleback is to continue to sustain this 
down-to-earth, up-for-anything culture that we have here. Um, continue to bring people to the mountain that, that are passionate about being outdoors year-round with family and friends. You know, we get we get winds here. We get cold temperatures. We get a lot of snow in the wintertime. Um, and that might drive some people away. But there are also a lot of people that realize that those are the conditions that are most fun to be up on the mountain skiing. Um, you know, in those storms, we typically get a lot of snow, and that's uh, you know that's when you want to be here. But this is uh, you know this region here is a remarkable example of a northern boreal forest, and there's a wilderness all around here, and animal life that just makes this whole mountain just this wonderful place to spend time outdoors year-round. That's the vision for this mountain, that this be an epicenter of people that love being outdoors year-round, that want to be here with family and friends to to enjoy this. And um, you know, I, I think the vision we're building out will be able to support that. So you've said that you view Saddleback as a pure ski area to Sugarloaf and Sunday River. Is that an aspiration, or is that how you view Saddleback now? I think that's how the customer base views us. Um, you know, we are a big mountain. Our our base lodge is the second highest in New England. We've got one of the highest elevations in New England. We've got over 2,000 feet of vertical. Um, we have the largest, uh, you know, steep terrain um, in in New England with our Casablanca glades hand-cut glades. You know, there is a uniqueness about Saddleback that, that uh, people embrace, but I think they also acknowledge that there's a big three in Maine. Sunday River, Sugarloaf, and, and Saddleback are all peers in that way. They're also, all three of them, very different. You know, they have different um, customer bases. They, you know, people are passionate about their mountains for different reasons or People don't like their mountains for different reasons. You know, we don't we don't believe that we're better than Sunday River or Sugarloaf. We just know that we're different, and and what we're offering is different. And and we're we're banking on the fact that there are a lot of people out there that that recognize that and want to want to be a part of what we're doing. So let's talk about that offering. I want to get into the mountain here because it's been five years since anyone has. Uh, skied on it in a lift serve fashion. I'm sure folks have been skinning it, uh, but I just want to go through all the different elements of it and see how they've held up and, and, and where you may have changed them. Uh, let's start with the snowmaking system. Uh, how well was that infrastructure maintained and is it still operable and, and what kind of shape is it in? Yeah. Um, you know, it was in relatively good shape actually, uh, but we've sent out all of our pumps to be uh, rebaked and, and rebuilt they're back in place again we've added some additional um, snowmaking pipes uh, along one of our trails we've brought in 86 new guns from hkd and smi and uh um, you know, we're we're ready to go at this Why point all we're doing covers. is just waiting for for temperatures yeah. uh, percentage wise uh, how much of the mountain is covered with snowmaking um you know, I I can't answer that right now. We're we're in the process of um, changing the way we make snow on the mountain. But I'd say somewhere around, you know, forty five percent is where we're going to wind up. 
Um, and we do have the ability to, to move some guns around to, to make snow, but we're also putting in a lot of fixed guns. Um, so, you know, on our core trails, we'll be able to recover more quickly, but we do have some beasts that we'll be able to put out there to make a lot of snow in a hurry, too. So talk about long-term what your goal is for snowmaking and how, how good your water source is there to potentially build that thing up. Yeah. Saddleback is unique um, in that we have an unlimited water supply water source. Um, right at the base of the mountain is Saddleback Lake. Um, and so, you know, that is uh, that's an enormous advantage for us. We do want to continue to build out our snowmaking system, um, add more trails, add more guns, and, you know, we have a plan to do that over the next three years. And so moving on to the actual trails on the mountain, what kind of condition was the trail system in? Was the mowing kept up when the mountain was dormant? It's what you would have imagined from a mountain that had been closed down for five years. Um, when Magella, which turned out to be you know, this fraud Australian company, I think they're in jail at this point. Um, but when they, you know, when they reared their ugly heads and started getting everyone all excited, there was some cutting that went on on the trails, not much. Um, and that's all grown in too. So, you know, the trails were rough. But uh, we had, um, you know, our, our mountain ops team, we brought in a, a, a team of um, uh, you know, cutters from uh, Central America that have been, uh, you know, doing this kind of work around New England. They were unbelievable. Their work ethic, the, the amount of cutting they got done in a, you know, in a short, relatively short amount of time. About a week after they left, we got 16 inches on the snow or on the on the mountain. Mm-hmm. And I was driving back from town one afternoon, looked up, and you know, for the first time in five years, it looked like a ski area. All the wow, all the trees were off the trails. The snow had piled on top of it. It was awesome and inspiring, and you know, a glimpse of what this place is going to look like. Did you get some turns? Sneak some turns in. You know, I, I didn't, um, but I, I don't have the luxury of that kind of time at this point, but I'm I'm pretty excited about being able to do that when we do go live. So can we expect the full trail footprint to come back online that the mountain used in 2014 to 15? Yes. Yes. Yep. And as far as glades go, have you had a chance to get in there and see what kind of condition those are in? Uh, did anyone have a chance to get in and do any clearing this off season? Oh, yeah. So the Casablanca and, and the rest of our glades are all hand-cut, and they were um, hand-groomed uh, again um, this fall. So they're all, they're all ready to go, and as good, or if not better, than ever. Amazing. And this is more of a long-term question, and I'm sure you haven't had a chance to think about this yet, but are there candidates within the current trail footprint for additional thinning of glades in the future? We have all sorts of plans for trail development. Um, you know, one of the things that we're adding, uh, you know, every ski area has a ski school, but we're adding an outdoor programs, and the ski school is a part of our outdoor programs. So we are going to have a backcountry and uphill program. Um, we're going to have fat bikes, mountain bikes, hiking, canoeing, kayaking. There's, there's flat water and white water kayaking around here. Um, birding, fly fishing, everything you could imagine. So, yeah, trail expansion is an important part of of what we're looking to do over the next four or five years. 
the berries cut a ton of new trails in the time that they owned the mountain. They also put together in 2006 a master plan that outlined many, many more potential lines. Do you still consider that document to be a valid blueprint for what's possible for Saddleback's future? It's a part of our our thinking. I wouldn't say that it's driving our planning at this point, but it's a part of our thinking. Um, and we're looking to do our own master plan uh, you know, in the next year as well. So part of their master plan was a proposed terrain expansion looking skiers right of the current mountain. What can you tell us about that part of the mountain and what that might look like if it were to be developed for skiing? It looked like there's a huge vertical drop there. There is. And, you know, I, I, I can't really give you anything in terms of plans that I'm prepared to talk about now, but I would say that we're looking at, at all of our resources as you know, potential down the road. We want to do so in an environmentally sustainable way. Um, you know, as we start to develop additional condos and homes around here, we want to make sure everything is connected to a trail. Um, we also want to take advantage of the fact that we hopefully will have a solar farm on our premises and, and uh, you know, that a lot of our energy needs will be taken care of with, uh, uh, you know, with electricity. Um, but in terms of being able to articulate a plan for where we're going in the future, that's going to have to follow the master plan. Help us understand the potential footprint here. How much land does Saddleback encompass? How much land do you own and how much of that could you potentially expand into if the resources and the time and the money and everything else were there? We have 6,400 acres, so it's a, it's an enormous property. Um, and there are a lot of, of uh, um, you know, really interesting terrain features that, that would be just awesome to ski. Some of those may be backcountry skiing experiences where we put a yurt out there and you'd, you'd ski back to that and maybe be able to spend the night, uh, spend a weekend kind of stuff, you know, some glamping, I guess you'd call it. Um, some of that may be alpine terrain that we develop some maybe mountain bike fat tire terrain um, there's there's an awful lot of opportunity for us and we're going to look to do so in a environmentally sustainable way but we're also going to look to do it in a way that establishes saddleback as a as a destination for people around the world will there be a terrain park this season yes where um, in in its uh, previous location so just just above the lodge and when can we expect to see a new trail map that's uh actually my wife who um works for ella bean is our is our pro bono graphic designer who's who's helping to work on that um and we're expecting to have that out sometime in the next 10 days your last trail map was a was a beauty. It was a James Newhouse. Are you going to? Is that the basis for the new trail map? Or are you starting over from scratch? No, no. We are devotees of, of Newhouse. Um, in fact, I'm on the nomination committee for the U.S. Ski Hall of Fame, and and was very aggressive in trying to get him into the Ski Hall of Fame for all the right reasons. No, we're we're honored to have him have done our map. Um, and at, at this point, we're, we're just looking to do some updates to make sure that it reflects the, the current reality. 
can we expect all the same trail names or did you change some of these or pretty much the same thing? You know, the, the trail names and our lifts are what I consider to be a really important part of our culture. So you know, one of the things you'll notice in our logo is that we've gone from Saddleback, Maine to Saddleback, Rangeley, Maine. We want to make sure that that connection between Saddleback and Rangeley is, is more um, intentional. Rangeley is one of the more remarkable four-season resorts, um, you know, in, in North America for all the right reasons. There have been people coming here to fly fish from around the world for 140 years, um, and that's really important to our brand. You know, the, the, the names of the trails and the, the lifts are a really important part of the culture. So all of our trail names are, are flies and fly fishing flies and all of the names of our lifts are streams and, and rivers around here fly fishing streams and rivers we're going to stay with with that culture and and uh, that's a part of the culture that we we cherish here so let's shift to chairlifts here so there's going to be some changes uh, my understanding is and you can correct any of this is wrong uh, the sandy double is out uh, the cup subtic t-bar is out uh, the, the Canabago quad obviously remains at lifts only dates to 2008 South branch quad remains at the bottom. Uh, and then Rangely will move from a double to a quad. I want to get a little, in a little more detail about Rangely, but can you just address the condition of those two remaining quads and confirm that those other two lifts have in fact been removed? Yes. So yes to all of that. The Canabago and the South branch are in, are in uh, exceptional shape and have, been recertified and ready to go. Um, the the Rangeley is in the process of, of being finished. Doppelmeyer is expecting to be off the off the mountain in early December. Um, and yes, we have taken down the South Branch and the Cup Septic. It really just you know the the South Branch was not. Or, I'm sorry, the the Sandy we've we've taken down. Um, the Sandy was was not in a in a um, condition that we were comfortable running it safely, and the cup septic had had a failure of of uh, one of the foundations on the drive, I think it was. So those are both gone. Um, we would have replaced those this summer, but we just didn't have enough time to get it all done. We didn't take ownership of the mountain until January 31st, and we just had to be realistic about what we were going to be able to get done this year. But the plan is to replace the Sandy with the old Rangeley drive and return, hmm. um, and then put, put in new new towers, you know, put a new profile in there, um, new haul rope, and new chairs. And the Sandy will go from a double to a quad. Nice. And the Cup Septic is most likely going to be one of these new high-speed um, uh, T-bars. Hmm. And... A T-bar because, you know, Saddleback is a relatively cold mountain. We do get wind hold days like, like every ski area in, in western Maine. And, um, you know, the, having a surface lift helps us um, make sure people can use the entire mountain because the Kennebago never seems to be affected by wind holds. Um, so we could get people up to the Kennebago, up to the, the uh, you know, our, our top of the mountain terrain. But also, you know, a T-bar uh, allows you to kind of work your way up the mountain. You get to the top, and you're kind of warm and ready to go. Um, and so that's the plan for next year. 
Uh, you, so you do plan to install both of those prior to the 21 to 22 season? Correct. Yeah. And we, we have additional lifts that we're looking to put in in the 21-22 season as well. Uh, we, you know, that will follow our master plan to figure out where we're going to put those. But we have, um, I think, four more lifts being planned into the, the build-out in the next eight years. Can you talk about where those would be and what kind of lifts you have in mind? We don't know yet. Um, again, that, that would follow the, uh, the master plan. Let's talk about the Rangely Quad here. That is, is actually the only brand-new chairlift going in in New England this offseason. Very exciting project. Um, where are you at with the, with the Rangely Quad? So the, um, the haul rope has been spliced and hung, and the chairs were hung last week. And you know they're they're finishing that up. Um, I'm I'm hoping, and I think they're hoping that they'll be done with that by the beginning of December. But everything is is on or ahead of schedule and and looking good. Doppelmeyer has been an exemplary partner and and just as committed to making sure that we get this mountain open as we have. Um, it's been a pleasure to work with those guys. So I actually had. Uh... Doppelmeyer USA President Katerina Schmitz on the podcast in the spring, and we were laughing about that video that Saddleback put online of tearing down the Rangeley double with one tug of a snowcat, which was which was amazing. Take us through that. Who figured out that that was possible, and how did you orchestrate the whole thing? Well, Jared and and Jason, uh, you know, J- Jared Emerson, Jason Bellamy are are the the two guys that were most instrumental in that, and you know what. I saw some of the social media making it sound like those things were in such bad shape that they fell down that easily. And I don't think people understood the engineering and the precision that went into being being able to make it happen that way. Um, these guys are good. They're really good. And I didn't see that until the video came out. But, you know, I, I had to chuckle because this is just the kind of thing these guys do. You know, hey, we got to bring down a whole bunch of towers. We could either do it taking a whole bunch of time, or we could do it really efficiently. Let's see if we can't do it really efficiently, and uh, they did. So back quickly to the potential lifts for the twenty-one to twenty-two season. When you say you're considering four different lifts, w- would this potentially be expansions of the trail network, or, or are you looking at putting lifts up to make the current trails more accessible and spread people out a little more? I think for the most part, it's going to be expansion of terrain. Um, there might be some uh, lifts that, that would go in to get more capacity up the mountain. Um, but I, I think primarily we're looking at expanding terrain. And the other thing is, you know, we've we've built out 123 condominiums and homes out of a fully built out plan that allows for 750. So we've got a lot of, of residential development that, that's still possible here. Um, COVID and the excitement around Saddleback is driving a lot of interest in that. But as we start to expand some of those areas, there's an opportunity for us to drop lifts into some of these um, developments to make it easier for those, A, to add more value to those developments, but also to get more people directly up onto the mountain. Where are the places that we would be most likely to see those, that terrain expansion? Um, you know, I, I, 
I don't even want to go there, Stuart. I just there <laughs> because if I throw that out there and it winds up not happening, then then well, hey. But uh, you know, we're I, I want to be as disciplined about this as possible, and, and really want the the process to be driven by the the, the master plan. All right, let's talk about your season passes a little bit. The season pass went on sale for $699 this spring. Uh, it looked for a while as though that might be an early bird price, but it stayed there. I mean, in fact, you dropped the price of your junior and college passes down to just $324. Uh, your Casablanca pass, which is for people age 19 to 24, that's $399. Just talk a little bit about your thinking behind pass pricing and how you arrived at these rates and, and why you adjusted them. Yeah. So... Um... And, and when you see our day ticket pricing come out, which which I'm also not prepared to, to give you yet, but I'll just I'll, I'll give you a hint of it. Our approach to pricing is that we want to be um, fair to everybody. You know, we we value and honor the contributions and the sacrifices of of our military and our first responders and a lot of other groups that would typically get discounts at ski areas. But we also value and honor the efforts of the single mom with three kids or the school teachers that are trying to, you know, keep their kids in an outdoor lifestyle um, at a ski area. So our seasons passes were intended to be a value that made skiing accessible to everybody. When you see our day ticket prices, um, our prices will not vary from um, you know, where you buy them. Uh, or from time of year, there will be one price that's intended to get everybody the same discount up front. And whether you buy the ticket on December 15th or on you know February 15th, the price of the ticket is going to be the same. You know, I, I know that when I've gone to ski areas, I, I've always had this feeling that the that I was a schmuck sitting on the the uh, you know the chairlift that the person next to me knew a lot more about how to game the system than I did and was probably paying half of what I was paying. Um, we don't want to do that. Right. We want to have a single price. We're not going to discount. We're going to stick to that price. So we came out with the season's pass price that we thought was fair to everybody. And it was our intention to raise that price. And as we got closer to the date when that was going to happen, we realized that we were still in the midst of, of a period that was causing a lot of, of pain and anxiety for the people that we were hoping would ski at the mountain. You know, people were losing their jobs. There was uncertainty about wh whether the jobs that were being furloughed from were going to come back. And we didn't feel that was a good time to be raising prices. So we've stuck with that um, through the, the fall and, and uh, you know, we'll probably stick with that all the way through to, to opening the mountain. What are we looking at for lift tickets? You got sticky wickets, you got plastic wickets, you got RFID. What, what, what do you have there? RFID, access system. So Amazing. Um, you know, that was another nod to COVID. We wanted to make sure that, that we were creating as much of a contactless system as possible. And the access system allows our guests to buy all their tickets in advance before they get here, but it also allows them to to reserve their spot in the ski school or um, you know, food and beverage reservations, condo reservations, all those things can be done um, through the, the access system. Your season pass includes two free days at Jay Peak. Could we see more reciprocal ticket deals with other independent mountains? 
You know, there's a very similar culture between Saddleback and Jay Peak, and we, we kind of felt like there was a, a kindred spirit there that, that our guests would really be excited about. Um, and also a feeling that the Jay Peak guests would, would be excited about what we're doing here. I think we also just wanted to start off small. You know, there's there's a nod to the, the fact that, um, you know, if we offer some additional value to our guests, it, it, it might make people, um, you know, be willing to come to us. Um, we're not joining the Epic or the Icon Passes. We haven't joined the, the Indie Pass. Um, we are an independent. We're proud of that at this point. Not saying that we'll never revisit that issue, but at this point, we're we're excited about where we are. Uh, JP did recently join the Indy Pass, so Indy Pass buyers get two days at JP and and fifty some other mountains. It's one hundred ninety nine bucks for JP season pass holders. It's one hundred twenty nine dollar add on. Um, has Indy Pass approached you, and, and would you consider joining it in the future? They have, and and you know, we would, but. We're we're taking all of this in in a very measured approach. You know, we want to we want to first get the mountain open. We want to understand what this business model looks like, and we also want to give the the epic, the icon, the end passes a chances a chance to play themselves out a little bit more. So we we understand more about what either of those might be able to offer to us and our guests, and also you know, what we might be able to offer to them. All right, Andy. Well, thank you very much for your time today. I really can't thank you enough, especially given all you have to do to bring Saddleback online. Um, everyone is super pumped about this, really excited about the work you're doing, uh, and, and really amazed and, and grateful that you were able to pull it off. So to you and the team up there, thank you, and I hope that I see you this winter. Thanks, Stuart, and thanks for telling the story. That's Andy Shepard, General Manager and CEO of Saddleback, Maine. December 15th. It is happening. It's almost surreal. After so many years of that thing sitting dormant, but in just over a month, skiers are going to be riding that new plot up the mountain. The amount of work that they've done to get that thing ready, and the fact that they've done it during COVID, is absolutely remarkable. And they should be commended for it. Good job with that, Andy. And thank you for taking an hour out of your day to take us through that. And thank you all for listening. Remember, subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com. You know, that was my fourth main episode, but if you think I'm done with the state because I've covered all the big ones, you are very wrong. I love Maine, and it's going to be a mainstay on the Storm Skiing podcast indefinitely. Plenty more ski areas to cover, and you can always go back to the big ones. So, Sign up to get that and much more as soon as they are live. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester. Talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.